Welcome to the podcast. This is a weekly podcast by Denver Transplants. I'm Andrew. And I'm Matt. And this is You Aren't From Here. Boom. 34. Boom, boom, boom. 34. Another one. <laughs> Beautiful four-day week last week. It's quick. It was a lot of work. I think I've decided I love three-day weekends, but I hate four-day weeks. Because you just you, you end up doing five days of work in four days. Exactly. Everything yeah. everybody's expectations are like, oh yeah, we'll get to you in, at the end of next week. It's like, yo, it's four days next week, not five. That takes out an entire day of work and then you gotta cram it in the next day. Yeah. No, I will say too, like last week it felt like it was like a day because I'm so used to oh, I was I used to the three day week, so then like or the weekend, and then so I went in and Sunday I was like, Okay, like what are we doing today? I'm like, oh crap, I got I can actually go to work tomorrow. So it not only that, but the next week it feels like you're getting ripped off again. So I'm with you, but Hey, all in all, I'll still take my three day weekend. I don't, I don't, you know, I'll suffer through the pain for that extra day. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, so, so Anna would also say that it fit, officially felt like summer this weekend. It was hot. Um, so Dude, I spent like three hours trying to work out my sprinklers because it was so hot and my grass is looking sad. So I was like, it's summer is summer is upon us, my friend, because my uh, my grass is crying because I can't figure out my sprinklers. So if you come to my house, my my house may be the one with all the dead grass in it. But that's I wonder right. if there's a, we'll have to research that if there's anything that Denver puts into effect for dead grass. I'd imagine not, but there might be. I'll have to look it up because that, that could be be applying to me very shortly. So yeah. But anyway, so what so what what do we uh what do we got this week? I'm pumped about this week's episode. Yeah. So this week we interviewed John Schlegel and right, not Adam, because last week we had Adam. Yep. This week we had John. We're on the we're on the Schlegel family back to back. So yeah. We're just uh we're we're now becoming slowly part of the the Schlegel family. Yeah, if they would welcome us, I'd be okay with it because it seems like they're doing good things. So this week we interviewed John Schlegel. He is the owner of Matt. So he he is the founder of Snooze as well as his new concept, Atimo Wine. Yeah, I want to make sure that you said Atimo Wine correctly because I butcher it. So this week we interviewed him. Uh, as you can see in the interview, he really opens up on his story and how he got to Atimo Wine and how from like a small age, he kind of envisioned having his own winery and visiting and living in Europe. So kind of cool to hear how Snooze allowed him to do that and kind of the background on why Snooze came about as well. So I thought it was a really cool interview. It is a rather long one, so we're going to keep our intro short and brief. So this week, leading straight in, the what did you learn? I've always, I don't know if you have heard about the Broncos. There's a good chance that you've heard. Who? I've never heard of them. The Denver Broncos, there's a good chance you've heard about their wait list for season tickets. Have you ever heard about that, Matt? I have. I don't know any details about it, but I have heard that there is a wait list. Yes. Yeah. So, it is actually pretty interesting. They're, the Broncos season tickets are, like, extremely hard to get. And usually you get put it on a wait list. And the wait list can be anywhere from basically 70,000 people up to 90,000 people. The Holy most, cow. Yeah, the most recent numbers 
we're up to, um, it was like 70,000 people. Or sorry, the current waiting list is just under 90,000 people. Um, there are certain, and the Broncos estimate that if you submitted to put on the, put on the wait list today, it would take roughly 13 years before you would be able to buy your first set of season tickets. Wow. Yeah. So they said basically every, every, the most each season that usually come available are a thousand seats. But the problem you have is when the season tickets come available, you can purchase four, two, three, one. So when a thousand comes up, really it's not like one for one, like a thousand people get in. It's more of a less than that number. So pretty crazy. I've read that it is free to put your name on the waitlist. So it's not a terrible idea if you want to put your waitlist name on the waitlist. Now, 13 years later, you probably will get an email saying you're off the list. And at that point, you can make the decision if you really want to pay for it or not. You're not like obligated to buy the season ticket at that point. So there are some people that I've read that are little, like they have little kids and their kids are one or two years old and they're putting their kids on waitlists. Dude, that's, I mean, that's brilliant. That's what I was just thinking. So you can, you can technically sign up. Like you don't have to be like 18 years old or whatever to sign up. Right. And you don't have to pay anything either. So it's kind of a no brainer to put your name on the list. Part of me wonders if they're going to try to, if, if the secret will get out and they'll stop, they'll stop that. But I don't know. I mean, that's, that seems like a pretty solid loophole to me. Yeah. No, completely. I mean, I would say um, there is one, Team, the Green Bay Packers reportedly have a larger wait list of 130,000. Um, and I mean, that makes sense. What else is there to do? No offense to all you Wisconsin's people, but I don't know what else there is to do in Green Bay other than watch your Packers. <laughs> yeah. Interesting enough, there aren't a lot of teams that actually don't have wait lists. For example, the Kansas City Chiefs, they won the Super Bowl last year, and we still don't have a wait list, which I find pretty nice. But that is interesting. Hmm. Well, yeah, but they jacked the price up to where it's probably like, that's probably why, dude, is when you have that price offset, it it it, it, it like automatically kind of dilutes that down a little bit because it's like, yeah. you know, so crazy expensive. Yeah, well, let's see. So that's the way you learn this week. If you're somewhat interested at some point in your life having Broncos season tickets, get online, sign up, wait 15 years. I mean, might as well do it now, dude. Like that's, I mean, we're not getting any, any younger. So put it on the list and uh, just see what happens. Okay, so sweat. Yep, short and sweet. Guys, uh, enjoy. You know, John Schlegel again. He is the uh, OG founder of Snooze. But more importantly, his new concept, Atimo Wine, is what we discuss a lot. And we really think you guys will enjoy it. it kind of tells his full story. And then, you know, hopefully in the weeks to come, we'll see you guys there. And John seems like a really cool guy. So you know, even if it's a, you know, a random weekday that they're open, I mean, go, go grab a, a bottle of wine and a cigar and go shoot the shit with John. I think that'd be a, a pretty solid, uh, solid night. So sit back guys, relax, enjoy the episode. And again, this is John Schlegel and he is the host and founder of Atimo Wine. Love y'all. Peace. All right. Hey, everyone. We have John Schlegel here with Atimo Wine. He is the host and founder. Uh, John, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us, Matt. Appreciate it. 
Yeah. And so, John, tell us and our listeners just a little bit uh, about yourself, your background, and how you kind of decided to start Atma One. Yeah, of course, man. I appreciate that. I, um, gosh, John Schlegel here. I'm a, I'm a fourth generation Colorado native. My great, great ancestors moved here at the turn of the century to uh, move to Leadville. They were silver miners. Uh, they got in the bust and apparently moved down to Denver, Colorado. So I grew up actually, you know, Adam and I going, my sister up to Leadville back in the early days. So I'm kind of one of those guys. Uh, I got two young boys who are fifth generation. Uh, growing up in Littleton, I told my parents at like 14, I wanted to get a bike. And they said, well, you need to go get a job. It was uh, very much a, you want to go make it happen. Yep. Found a way to get a worker's permit. They dropped me off at my first restaurant at 14. Dudester's Cafe, I still remember. It was an Italian restaurant. And, you know, traditional like restaurant training, right? The owner comes in. We'll do the paperwork later. Here's a bus tub follow those women around that are, you know, serving and make sure they never carry a plate. And you're like, great. And then they said, and you get a free meal afterwards. And I'm like, I get a free meal after this. Awesome. This is great. So, uh, dude, I totally did it, Matt. I uh, ran around for, you know, a few hours, like scraped plates. I took all the, you know, dirty dishes out of their hands. At the end of my shift, they handed me nine bucks in cash and they offered me a cigarette out back with them. And I was like, this is the coolest job ever. I'm totally coming back here. I'm never going to a free meal on top of it. So, of course, I came back every Sunday until, uh, uh, you know, I got that bike and stayed with it, man. I found this really amazing um, pleasure, I guess, in making people happy and serving people. And so for us growing up, going out to eat was a really big deal. And when my parents would come pick me up at the end of my shift and I'd be able to get them half off. And then sometimes I'd use as much of my tips to kind of pay for it. I just saw what that did for my family and it was very inspiring. And so I kind of found this purpose, man, in life, which is I love making people happy and food and beverage is sort of this like a conduit. It's like my engine to sort of serve this purpose. So I am so fortunate, man, to sit here 30 years later after those first shifts and feel like I'm living my purpose. And it's now through grape juice. Uh, for a long time, it was through eggs and bacon and pancakes. And before that, it was a ton of fine dining along the way. So I am, again, really fortunate, man. I, uh, I, I kind of don't check in or out of work. I get to go make people really happy every day. And I was really fortuitous, Matt, to um, kind of have this direction or these goals in my life where I was like, all right, at 30, I'm going to open up my own restaurant. Like, I love doing this. And so I'm going to do everything I can from now until 30 to open that up, which really meant go work corporate, go get the degree in it, trip up over everybody else's dime before you go in on it yourself. Again, I never had like that daddy Warbucks in my life that I could just call uncle whoever and be like, all right, I'm ready, let's go, where's my cash? It was like, you know, hustle or die kind of mentality. So uh, that was the two dreams, man. 30, I was gonna open up my own restaurant. And at 40, I always knew I was gonna move abroad. So again, we didn't travel much when we were kids. Uh, as I got into the restaurant scene, wine became this like kind of cool way to travel the world without getting to go anywhere. So again, as a kid that grew up with Keystone Light and Coors Banquet Beer, all of a sudden I found this like, ooh, wine's pretty fun. And this great <laughs> is pretty big. And wow, that's South Africa. There's Israel, there's France, there's Italy, there's Northern California. And again, maybe being connected to food and seeing the sourcing and how important it was, the wine kind of, piggyback that whole mentality so I again at a, you know graduating college was like all right here's my path in life at 30 I'm doing this at 40 I'm doing this go figure it out and so go work for the best people you possibly can until you 
get that idea and know what you're going to do. So I graduated from University of Denver in the hotel restaurant program. Uh, at the time, I thought Hyatt Hotels had like the best food and beverage training program in the, in the world. The goal was to go become a GM of a fancy hotel, make enough money to open up my own restaurant. So I uh, packed up my bags three weeks after graduation. I moved to Southern California, where Hyatt gave me a job uh, at their property. And the funny story was Hyatt's like, all right, we're going to move you to San Diego. And I looked at the Hyatt director, right? All of these are super plush hotels. And the big one downtown was, uh, I can't remember the name of it, right on the water. And they're like, nope, it's not that one. And I was like, well, how about Hyatt? I land you over here. It's right by Pacific Beach. They're like, no, no, not that one. I was like, the only one inland is where I'm working. I'm thinking this in my head, like La Jolla. Never even heard of this place before. So stupid. <laughs> I got landed I at uh, San Diego. Yep. I started in La Jolla at the Hyatt. And uh, it turns out, as you're all laughing, it's like the coolest, most beautiful place in maybe the country, but certainly in San Diego. And there was next level. So here I was, this 22-year-old with a fresh suit, saying yes to everything. And what's cool is made this uh, property so special was uh, two things. One, it was the only Hyatt in the entire company in the country that leased a property outside of the hotel and ran its own restaurant. And it ended up being wow. one of the most successful restaurants in the whole country. It's called Cafe Chipango. It was voted best sushi and Asian food in Southern California. It had a James Beard Award winner attached to it. Very unusual. And uh, so I got to be part of that process. And then they also did all this offsite catering events. So all these beautiful San Diego homes would call Hyatt and we would go into these, you know, $10 million cliffside San Diego mansions and do thousand dollar plate dinners for Bill Clinton as a fundraiser or George Bush when he was running for governor or, uh, you know, Tiger Woods at certain points would come by. So it was next level. You got the FBI doing background screens on you because they're walking in and you literally are handing a plate to Hillary Clinton. It was wild, especially at 22, 23. So it was sick, man. I got to do all of this in a super young age. I ended up taking over that Cafe Chapango restaurant, which is where I became a wine buyer the first time. So Again, they're like, gosh, kid, you, you know how to do inventory. You've you're got good energy. You know anything about this food. Like your fine dining palate sucks. So we're going to put you in the kitchen for six weeks and you're going to work with the chef. And dude, it was epic because you learn that, you know, the food truck comes and she picks her vegetables. The fish truck comes and he says, I want that tuna. I want those halibuts. And you're like, oh, fine dining. That's what that means. And everything from bathroom checks, serving from the left, cleaning from the right, Salt has to be on the right. All that attention to detail was my growing learning curve. Again, that was the goal, man. Trip over their dime. Learn how the wine programs can work. Um, and then I got transferred from that Cafe Chapango. They decided to open a second location. So I moved to Vegas. And I lived in Vegas for a year, opening up a Hyatt out in um, Lake Las Vegas. I was, again, sitting around these insane chefs that they flew out all over the country. Uh, in the world, actually, that guy was from the Caribbean Islands. And... Uh, Man, it was just like it sounds. A 26-year-old is the GM of a restaurant in Vegas. It was exhausting. It was a blast. Uh, it aged me probably 20 years. And uh, after a year of doing that and getting to getting the keys really to the, to the place and said, look, John, we don't care what kind of money this place makes. We just need to make sure that the people from the casino come down and have the meal of their life. So I got carte blanche, man, to order any wines I wanted to. These chefs were bringing in like Kobe beef before it was cool and live baby eels and lobsters all over the place. It was next level cuisine. So now I'm like, all right, I, I got good licks with fine dining. I, 
I've kind of got this passion and, and thoughtfulness for Japanese food and Asian food. Uh, unfortunately, my father passed away super early. He was only 54. So when I came home to sort of deal with the funeral, I'm the oldest of three. I came back to Vegas and I was like, the hell am I doing in this town right now? This town sucks. <laughs> and I was like, man, now's the time. Why don't you, you know, Colorado was for me a little bit of a tired culinary town 20 years right. ago. It was meat and potatoes. And I wanted to like get bigger and, and broader and work for smarter people. But I also thought, man, maybe I can kind of be a bigger fish in a smaller pond. Let's start going back to Denver and work in the angles and build up a Rolodex of people so that by the time I make that 30 year old mark, it'll happen. And so Matt, I did, I uh, came back and started working at the chop house, uh, which back in the day was pretty cool. It was back when the avalanche and the um, red wings were like battling back and forth. So I served a lot of, I overserved a lot of players past 2 a.m. when I shouldn't have it. Uh, ran a, you know, north of um, 10 figure uh, facility with 400 dining seats and it was awesome. Uh, that's also part of the rock bottom group. So it was a bit corporate, but it was like, oh, let's go to corporate restaurants and figure out what that is. So rock bottom pulled me out of there and said, look, we want you to run our training store for rock bottom. We're opening up a brand new location. Every manager in the company is going to come here. You're going to train them for three months and then we'll ship them out. And I thought, well, that's the playbook I want. Like I want to learn how to open a restaurant from scratch. I want to learn how to train new managers to be better managers. Yeah. And I'll do my time and I'll do my reps. And I did that man for another like year or two. Great learning. Um, and again, rock bottom was a pretty interesting company back then, but I do remember coming from fine dining and then walking up to a table and serving these taquitos, these Titan toothpicks. It was deep fried frozen stuff that came in a truck with a scoop of frozen guac and a scoop of frozen Pico. And I brought it to a guest bringing authenticity. I'm like, am I really making this person happy? Because this food is not real food, you know? And it just, it was a bit of a, maybe a food snob moment I had with like, you know what, if this is your career. Are you really making that person healthier? Right. I don't know if you are, man. It's time to go work for an independent restaurant. Like now I did corporate, I got my playbook. What's the next round? I'm gonna go work for an independent restaurant. I wanna go what it feels like to own it. And I kind of missed the Japanese Asian food stuff. So I went to Sushi Den down in Wash Park. Yep. And uh, if you know anything about Sushi Dan, it's, it, it, it was, and I still think is, one of the most iconic restaurants in, in Denver. If you're familiar with the Zagat survey, which is the, um, you yep. know, the, the judge of, you know, great restaurants in the country, you could go to Japanese food and number one is New York and number two is San Francisco and number three is LA and number four is New York and number five is San Francisco and number six was Denver, Colorado. And it was, you know, Toshi at Sushi Dan. And you're like, oh, this guy's next level. I was dangerous enough with some Japanese traditions and culture. So I worked for him for another couple of years and got my ass handed to me. Uh, he is one of the most meticulous attention to detail chefs I've ever worked with. Yeah. Uh, he will tell you, I don't trust any manager that's not Japanese for at least two years. He would say that he'd yell at his Japanese manager who would come tell me, Toshi doesn't trust you just so you know. So you're on best behavior for two years. He'd be like, yes, sir. No, sir. Uh, and even today, Matt, I still go into Sushi Dan and I still... Toshi son, it's nice to see you, Toshi son. And I still nodding. And my wife's looking at me like, why are you bowing to this guy? I was like, I don't know. He still intimidates the hell out of me. Yeah. <laughs> but that man will live or die behind that sushi bar. Like he's certainly done great with Izakaya, but that's his corner. He wants to be the best at what he does. He is still behind that sushi bar six days a week. 
usually on the seventh day, he would come in as a guest and sit in front of a different sushi chef and just say omakase, which means I trust you, make me dinner. Can you imagine that? Order as a new chef slicing. And you'd have guys come in from New York and Philadelphia to come work at Sushi Den, and he'd put every one of them on rice. It's like, you do three months of rice. If you don't make rice good, you'll never see the front of that line. So again, it was just like, wow, remember that. Um, and I hit a ceiling there because obviously I couldn't go very much farther. I started getting close to that 30 age. I started thinking like, oh, I'll be, I'll do something in Japanese food. I was starting to build a bunch of Rolodex. I um, would always work these crazy hours and late nights, Matt. And uh, I remember one morning I just would go most of the time to go see my family. I'd end up at Gunther Tootie's or La Peep or Village Inn, have a quick breakfast before I went to work at 10 or 11. And why did every single breakfast place just suck? They were all so tired and so thoughtless with it felt like their food it felt like I went into my aunt Karen's living room every time it was like no music no pulse everything feels old and you know like a antique store and so uh, I remember one morning I woke up to go see my mom and I hit my alarm and this is you know before phone so I said snooze and I thought well that's kind of a funny name and then I said snooze again and I'm like wait a minute that's a great name and the funny joke is that, uh, you know, I get home from my shift. I usually have a beer or two at the end of it just to kind of wind down. I was drinking a Coors, a banquet beer. And so uh, I woke up, I hit snooze. The Coors was right next to it. If you ever noticed the two O's in Coors are very, very identical to snooze's two O's. And I wrote the logo right there. Uh, I came up with the idea of like, wow, why can't I change the way people eat and think about breakfast? Like there's a future there. There's a runway there. And so I uh, dude, I hit my alarm. I had an aha moment. I quickly grabbed the domain and I, for the next six months, uh, wrote a business plan. And every time I could take a vacation, I'd run out to Chicago, who to me is one of the best restaurant cities in the country. I'd be like, how's Chicago doing breakfast? And then two months later, I go out to San Francisco. Who I was, you know, five, seven years ahead of Colorado's culinary scene. I'm like, how's San Francisco doing breakfast? And then I'd run out to New York and this is again before phones and stuff. So I literally take these menus, I'd stuff them under my backpack. I'd run out the door. I'm like, flight of pancakes. That's a brilliant idea. How do I, you know, elevate Benedict's all this, you know? And, right. and so from there, that's kind of how snooze evolved, Matt. I, I wrote a six month business plan. I was like, this is going to change the way literally people eat and think about breakfast. This is my concept. And so uh, I spent the next three years, trying to raise money, trying to find the space, trying to understand how you go from operator, GM to entrepreneur and restaurateur. And uh, it was a huge learning curve, right? And I had to find my daddy Warbucks. And so 23 bank rejections, 17 investor rejections, breakfast is a dumb idea. Everybody knows that it's, you know, liquor is quicker. Where's the cocktails? What happened to the Asian place? No, 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 no. And it was awful, man. It was of the hardest um, emotional professional years I've ever had. In the meantime, I'm still working at uh, a startup Asian place in Cherry Creek called Mao that ended up going off. Uh, I ran all the nightclubs from downtown Denver, if you can believe that at one point, because I thought, oh, I don't have to be at work till five. I'll spend all day working on snooze, go make a ton of money serving bottle service to a bunch of people that, uh, and if you know me, you've met my brother, we're like flip flop kind of hat backwards kind of people. So I don't know if I've ever <laughs> bottle service before I worked at a nightclub, but I kept thinking to myself, all right, your purpose, make people feel great. People want to come in here and they want to make out and they want to get drunk, give them what they want. And so you would, you know, give great service and do lots of Red Bulls and vodkas and make it happen. And 
Uh, finally, man. Uh, with people, John, is that what I'm hearing you say? Were you making out, out with all the guests? Getting... If people are going home, making out. <laughs> my career is being elevated. I'm progressing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it was quite a time, man. And uh, someone who wakes up early, can you imagine going to bed at four or five a.m. and then the next job you have is waking up at four or five a.m. Body took a little shot, but it was at that point, Matt. I found arguably the worst location you could ever open up a restaurant 15 years ago, corner of Park Avenue and Larimer. And there was an old for sale sign out there, hand done, it was by the owner. Nobody went down there back then. And I was like, huh, I wonder if she would rent this space to me over here. Maybe I can start down here. And a year later, Matt, um, I ended up renting the space for six months so I could finalize funding. Um, I got a, my first investor said yes to so the joke for 75 grand. He owned 30% of snooze. Uh, and I went back to the banks and they said, okay, I got a down payment. Here's my car. Here's my house. What do you want me to sign? And they're still like, we're not giving you a business loan, but we'll let you buy the building and we'll use this money as a down payment. And then when you fail, we'll take the building back. And I was like, so you're going to give me the money. And they're like, yeah, idiots. What are you thinking? But sure. And dude, I took a business loan with a small down payment, turned it into a real estate construction loan. And then the city of Denver has this area, the Office of Economic Development. So if you're in a brighted area that's really struggling and you're going to bring employment, they'll give you another loan, not based on your credit history, but just based on employment um, metrics. I'm like, dude, I'm going to hire 25 people down here. And they're like, at the corner of Park Avenue and Larimer? Isn't that where the mission is, the shelter? I'm like, no, no, that's right behind me. That's my neighbor. This is an empty building right here. And they're like, all right, well, this is why it's here. So then I took out another loan. And it's funny, man, at this time, like I'm signing personal guarantees, like it's my job. And I'm like, I'm either gonna move back in with my mom or this is gonna work. Called my wicked smart brother. And I was like, Adam, I got it. Like I got the money, we got the space. He moved uh, away from his corporate job and actually became a dive master in Costa Rica for three months. I was like, dude, when you get close, let me know. And so I signed the lease. I called him and said, hey, uh, there's a woman in Guatemala who wants to make coffee for us. Can you take a bus down there and check it out? And then I'll need you back. So Adam left his Costa Rican master dive career after working at a finance KPMG job. Took a chicken bus three days down to Guatemala, met uh, Godoy's family called me and goes, this, I'm in, let's do this. Like I just had the coolest adventure of my life. And uh, him and I lived above the restaurant the first six months. It was a one bedroom loft. I oh, built one of those college dormitory style uh, lofts. And I thought, well, God, his brother just gave yeah. off his big fat corporate job. I should probably give him the bedroom and uh, I'll live above the loft and uh, did that until I got married six months later. And then I booted him and my wife and I lived above the loft for the next three years. And dude, this was back when Snooze was doing uh, 2 a.m. till 2 p.m. So we used to be open overnight. I thought, oh, I'll take the Denver Diner crowd. I know all the people in the nightclub business. They'll start coming down after work. Um, dude, it was a total poop show, I would say. Yeah. Like that 2 a.m. crowd <laughs> at 6. Intense. You're turning bottles around. Everybody that was your friend is so hammered by the time they come in here. Staffing a restaurant in the graveyard shift sucks. Never recommend doing that, but uh, we did it for six months and, it, and we decided to pull it and thought, you know, let's just be the best we can from 6.30 to 2.30. That's our jam. And um, that's what we did, you guys. So uh, with my brother and I, and, you know, a lot of hustle from people, we were five and $700 days. It was wicked slow. Everybody thinks snooze open and it was gangbusters. It wasn't. 
but the next year it was a thousand, two thousand dollar days. And then the next year it started to increase. And then the weirdest thing happened, man, it was 08 when the market crashed and people, and I, I believe this today, especially, but back then you knew people, I think humanity still has this need to be social. They have to be around each other. And so back then when the market got hit so hard, you still wanted to go out and be around people. You didn't have a hundred bucks, but you had 20. And if you were going to take a girlfriend out, if you wanted to take your mom out, you wanted a place that was cool and hip, but 20 bucks could stretch you a long way. And that was perfect for snoots because we have great vibe, like energy strong, design is strong, lights of eye candy in the design, the service and the food, I think were you know, next level. We always claimed it to be sort of the finer diner. Let's do fine dining traits with $15 check price. Salt can still be on the right. You can still serve from the left and clear from the right. We call it auctioning off at tables. I can't stand that. Like know who your guest is, know what his table number is. Don't walk up to the table and be like, all right, who had the omelet? Who got the pancakes? Like sloppy, dude, that's sloppy service. Right. Let's not do that. And that's when it kind of took off. And so then as restaurants were imploding, we got a call from our broker who's like, hey, I got this location at 7th in Colorado. It's an old Boston market. What do you think? And I remember driving there and I'm looking at, and if you've ever been on Colorado Boulevard, you know, it's like the lamest street in the city to drive because it's so busy. Yeah. And I didn't even look back. It's a pretty unattractive building, to be honest. And I knew the inside looked like an old Boston market, but we had a killer designer. And I just sat there and watched Colorado Boulevard. And I was like, oh my God, main on main, a location. That's what that means. Yeah. And I'll still never forget. We opened that first day. We waited till nine. And we had a line around the block and you're like, God, have people even heard of us? This is amazing. And still to this day, 13 years later, that restaurant has never not gone on a wait at some point throughout the day, Tuesday, middle of February, they'll still quote a 20, 30 minute wait. It's, it was insane, man. And I think that's when the brunch culture started kind of taking off because again, people didn't have 200 bucks to go out to dinner, but they had 20. And I think they started seeing some of the success of, other breakfast places, but in particular snooze. And then from there, that's when Adam and I looked at each other and we're like, all right, it's on. And I think Adam always knew about my next dream. I always told him, hey, just so you know, at 40, I'm taking off and I'm gonna make this happen, but let's have some fun along the way. And he married an Aussie. Uh, and so his dream was like, cool, I'll move to Australia, you move to Italy. Our mom will now have the greatest retirement career of her life. She can just spend three months in each location. And uh, so from there we opened Fort Collins. Um, and then from there, we started getting the men in dark suits, I sort of say, who started being like, hey, what are you guys doing? How are you guys doing this? Do you guys need investors? Do you guys want some more money? And we were like, man, we're having some fun. And do we know what we're doing, man? My brother is a finance guy. I have an accounting background. Like, we're good. But uh, a couple people that we really liked started saying, gosh, if you need anything, let us know. And they said, okay, well, uh, what should we do next? I'm like, oh, you guys should go south of Hampton. You've got to be in a suburb. Prove that you guys can be in a lifestyle mall. And then you have something. So then we went to the streets of South Glen on University in Arapahoe. So you got Whole Foods, you got Best Buy, Snooze tucked its way next to Pete's Coffee, and then that worked. Uh, and then they said, you know, you got to do another location. We did Boulder, and Boulder was five, and that worked. And then they said, gosh, if you really want to take a ride with this, you got to go out of market. This just can't be a couple bros that are doing a Colorado story. So I said, God, the best GM I ever worked with or for was from San Diego. I wonder if he'd be interested called Robert Butterfield. He's like, I'm in, let's do it. So we opened that location in San Diego in uh, Hillcrest. And um, from there, we got a lot more men in dark suits start calling us and saying, look, what are you guys doing here? 
And so at this point, you know, I'm getting to like 36, 37. Uh, we'd had some trouble having kids and finally I got a little boy and that's when it was, uh, I was 38, almost 39. Uh, I looked at my two-year-old who I knew, but was running a company and trying to grow it and said, Megan, I need a year of heavy lifting. And when I finish, we're going to make this next dream happen. And she was like, oh, you were serious about that? Like, you're going to make me move abroad? This is a woman who grew up in Aurora, has never lived outside of Colorado, but it was that deal breaker conversation before we got married. Like, I'm a restaurant guy, so my hours are pretty jacked. Are you comfortable with that? She's like, no problem. Like, hey, I'd love to be a father. Are you open to having kids? She's like, great. So, hey, at 40, just so you know, I'm moving to Italy. I'm going to study how wines work. And she was like, sure, whatever. No problem. I'll believe it when I see it. And dude, it totally happened. 39, I looked at her and I was like, it's on and had one of the most intense, stressful years because you're running and still growing a company and thriving culture. And on the sideline and behind the scenes, I was running across the country doing panel presentations and trying to promote the brand of Snooze and get some investors excited. And long story short, we found a really cool private equity company out of San Francisco who believed in um, the triple bottom line, you know, like we have to be fiscally responsible we have to be the biggest asset to the community and philanthropic and man, the world is for the children. So we have to be sustainable in everything we do. And if you're not part of that jam, we don't want to play with you. And they were like, we got you. And at the same time, there was a gentleman named David Burzon, who was um, the CEO of Paradise Bakery in Aspen. Uh, he grew it to 40, uh, purchased by Panera Bread. He was vice president there, grew that to another 80 and then was like, eh, I'm out of here. I'm going to go do something else. And he was sitting on the sideline, had a non-compete for two years up in um, outside of Aspen, right as I was looking to bring on a next next level person. And so David and I courted each other with Adam for six months. And I was like, oh my God, this is the guy. Put together a deal. They made me sign a contract for a year. And I was like, you guys, I can't be here letting him run snooze. Like, this is my child. So I'm literally going to leave the country. And if something happens, just let me know. And so the deal with my wife was I wanted three harvests. And once he kind of came on board, her and I did a quick trip to Italy. And I said, look, Megan, I've been studying this my whole career. Emilia Romano, um, Tuscany and Piedmont, they make the best wine in the world. This is my last journey in life. There's no other like taco stand I have to do at 50 or a, a burger concept that I'm going to pull off at 60. Like this is it. And let's go where the best wine is made. And you know, that's, perhaps in arguable comments, but France and Italy make the most wine in the world. They consume the most wine in the world. So there's obviously something happening there. And I had always decided Italy was going to be my path. So I knew it would be one of those three places. So we left my son with my mom for a week and we went out to each location. And at that point, I didn't care. I'd had a, a contact in each location to get work. Uh, we went to Tuscany and Emilio, um, you know, Montalcino, Montalpulciano. We did Chianti Road. My wife's like, all right, I get it. Like I can do this. But then the next six hour day we drove up to Piedmont so you know Italy's a boot there's 22 states the most northwestern state is Piedmont a little bit more off the radar but it banks right up to the Alps and uh, I think when we landed in this tiny town Matt and we saw these 2,000 people all Italians no Americans and you know little anxiety going on are we really doing this and then the mountains came out and you're like boom this is home like when we kind of freak out about what we did. We can at least go to the hills and feel a little piece of Colorado and pulled it off, man. I came back. I told my whole family what was happening. And uh, six months later, we got our visas, uh, found our way out to Northern Italy, uh, moved into a tiny little town called Monforte de Alba. 
which was literally 1800 people. So the Barolo region is really what it's known for. Barolo is maybe 4,000 acres of land in the whole world. Barolo is made from a Nebbiolo grape, like a Pinot Noir, but it has to be grown in Barolo. It has to be certified by the government uh, based on 14 stipulations, Southern facing so, um, sun exposure, soil types have to be a certain level, uh, age has to be a certain amount of time on the vines, so on and so forth. But, um, and then it's two years in wood, another year in a bottle or tank before it can be released. So right now, 2021, they're just oh, releasing okay. 2017s. Uh, Barbaresco is just 30 miles north, uh, very similar situation, I'm, but less. You're talking 1800 acres of land for the entire world, uh, has to be grown in Barbaresco, raised in Barbaresco, aged in Barbaresco, and truly is one of the most refined, most gorgeous areas of the world. Um, and Italy obviously has so much intensity between art and Rome. Um, this was off the radar, man. There was, it's all gastronomic people, best food in the world, some of the best winemakers in the world. And that's what was fascinating, Matt, was like, oh, these are like third and fourth and fifth generation winemakers. You can never right. learn that going to Sonoma or Napa. And it's just that family business of things being handed down after year after year. So I'll never forget, man, everybody there drinks wine. I mean, you drink it when you're a baby, they'll put little Nebbiolo in the soda water for the kids and they'll little, take little sippies of it. They encourage mothers who are breastfeeding to have at least a glass of wine. So it's in their milk. So their kids get used to it. And it's not like it's a alcoholic thing. Like I never ran into many drunks or very few in Italy. It was just, Hey, at 10 o'clock, you're going to have a small glass of Dolcetto for calories at lunch. You'll probably have one more glass of wine. You'll take a siesta, one more glass at dinner, maybe two repeat the same next day. And so that was the, that was the next journey, man. I was, um, I moved out there March 13th, uh, first day of spring. It was right after my 40th birthday. So I turned 40 February 22nd. I landed in Italy on the first day of spring, March 21st, excuse me, 2014. And, uh, man, that's how the, the path happened. So again, knocked on a lot of doors. I started doing a lot of what they call stages, which are like internships basically. And it was everything from, putting labels on bottles. I cleaned a ton of tanks. Uh, I swept a lot of floors. Um, I did a lot of label making, a lot of boxing, a lot of palleting. Uh, and then when it was, they were really more comfortable with me, they'd give me my shears. I'd walk around with the vineyard uh, managers and the other, you know, a lot of Moroccans, a lot of Southern Italian people, kind of the immigrant work, the farming work. And they would just yep. go vine by vine and be like, all right, Lasha, which means get rid of that leaf, get rid of that leaf, get rid of this leaf. Let's bend this this way. Let's bend this this way. Okay, next leaf. So it's cool. You'll have a whole vineyard of Nebbiolo grapes and they all have the same sun. They all have the same soil. Every single vine is totally different. It was fascinating. It was also fascinating, I think, coming from a world of, you know, the American entrepreneurial spirit. I love being in control. Quarter one, we're going to do this. Quarter two, we're going to make this happen. And the next thing you know, you're working for Mother Nature who just decides that a snowstorm yep. in July is going to happen and you're going to suck it up and deal with it. Or right. your fall is not going to have long, cool summer nights. We're going to make this thing hot and it's going to affect the vines. Yep. And so fascinating experience to work for mother nature. She reminds me all the time, even now, especially given this last year, I think she's still in charge. Um, yep. And so you just have to really be humble with that belief. It actually is more, for me, uh, mentally healthy to give away that sort of control and think I have one thing I can control, which is only myself, the rest of the world, you can react and how you react is, you know, um, 
is going to say a lot about you. My favorite saying is, you know, if there's something you can do about it, then why would you get upset? And if there's nothing you can do about it, then why would you get upset? And so it's right. sort of the mentality of, you know, mother nature repeating You're like, ah, okay, you just got to roll with it. See how fluid it is. So. Uh, yeah, I like that, John, because I think that is another thing that adds to the novelty of wine, right? Because that's what makes certain years more special than other years, right? And so it's like if every year was great, well, that the novelty and excitement of the wine kind of leaves a little bit, you know? So I, I like that. And, and so when you moved, when you moved to Italy, did you was your goal to just live abroad, or were you living abroad as a as a side effect of actually wanting to start a wine company, or did that kind of were the how were those interrelated? I went out there to be a student of the wine industry. I wanted to get my hands in the soil. I knew that I'm a better learner when I'm doing things hands-on. So I, I had a friend who was connected in the wineries there. He's the one that really brought me in. So once we got there and my wife was like, oh my God, I can't I'll believe I'm living in Northern Italy right now. Right. <laughs> Giving her a couple months to just acclimate. Then she was like, all right, I get it. I know why we're here. Go do you. And that's when I started those stages. And then um, I got so fortunate, man. I mean, again, there's there's only a certain amount of space that's out there. There's only a small little town. I ended up um, renting this house that six months later, the woman said, look, I think we're over coming back and forth to take care of this. Would you be interested in buying the house? But you also have to buy the vineyard next to it. And there's two acres of Nebbiolo grapes that are planted for Barolo. And this was sort of my classroom. So the owner of the place was coming by each day to kind of show me how the wine worked and how the vineyard worked and yeah. how to prune vines. Uh, a year later, I ended up purchasing these Nebbiolo grapes that make Barolo. And I was like, oh my God, at least, uh, at least I have a thousand bottles of my own wine. Like that's a start. I can't make a career out of that, but I can at least like, you know, can't sprint the mile. So let's get your first, you know, 5k out of the way. And what a great way to do it. So, um, after three harvests, you know, to, to stay married to my wife, cause that was the deal <laughs> I was like, I moved back home to yep. Denver. Uh, and she's like, look, I get it. I know this is your passion. You you have somehow told me since we were dating that you were going to do this. So you can go back and forth, take care of the house, which we rent out on Airbnb, you know, take care of the vineyards and work with Alan and then see how this progresses. And right. so I came back with that goal. And then Matt, I really did. I wanted to make my own production. I wanted my own label. I wanted to figure out how I could do it. And I flirted with the Palisades in Colorado a little bit and looked at some of their grapes. And I was like, ah, dude, I'm not for me. I looked at some stuff on the West Coast up in Oregon and Washington. And again, I think there's some beautiful wines there, but they call those new world wines. So new world yep. is everything in the Americas. So the soil is different. It's a little bit more fruit driven, uh, lots of oak. If you go to France and Spain and Italy, it's that old world wines, European wines. And my palate was all about it. And again, I just came from arguably the greatest producers of wine in the world that have been passed down multiple generations. Like you can never teach that. And I do, man, I believe that 70% of the wine is made in the soil. Like that does all the heavy lifting. So back to that, like, gosh, if this is your last runway, how can I make this work? And as I kept going back to do my visits, thankfully I had a friend who was a head winemaker and says, hey, a guy from Madonna wants to talk to you. And I walk out and he says, look, I have this land I just bought. I don't want to make this wine, but I have 10 hectares of Barbera de Alba. It's a DOC process. How about if I grow these grapes for you and then I'll crush them for you for the juice. And then you can bring it back and you can have it and we'll make it together. And I was like, so you're going to let me make a Barbera, the Alba, a DOC. And he's like, CC, min problem. And they love the American story. They love the idea of being part of an American project. And then six months later, I ended up with um, this tiny little town in Doliani that's world renowned for Dolcetto grapes, the everyday drinking wine. And 
this guy had offered me two hectares of land, about five acres, and said, look, what if I grow the grapes for you? And then right after the crush or harvest, you can take them back to America and they're yours. You can do whatever you want to. And I was like, and so again, man, that four-year process, for some reason, it's like hit the idea and four years later, I make it happen. Yeah. But I came back having some Nebbiolo that made Barolo. I ended up with a Barbera, a Dolcetto, and a Nebbiolo grape. I found a source for a Barbaresco. And then there's a Favorita, which is sort of like a Pinot Grigio Piedmont. There's an Arnais grape, which is like a Sauvignon Blanc of Piedmont. And that was the other thing, man. Yeah. Italy's 3,000 varietals of wine. Like you can be really right. overwhelmed. So why not just go a mile deep in one area versus mm -hmm. trying to be an inch wide? <laughs> with wine all over the world. So we are very much authentic to Piedmont wines, really authentic to the Barolo Longue area. And that's what we do now. I, I get to go back and forth to Italy two to three months a year. I have our farming partners out there who grow the grapes for us. We harvest the grapes right after it. Even just happened this morning, we had a truck come in and right after harvest, it gets shipped from uh, these wineries down to Genoa, Italy, their port city. It gets on a refrigerated container I get an email. I watch the thing track from Genoa to Houston. From Houston, it gets unloaded onto a rail or a shipping container, uh, a truck. It pulls all the way up. I mean, literally 17 hours, it just left Houston port yesterday. It arrives into our back alley in Larimer, right across from the homeless shelter, pumping in Italian varietals into our tanks in the back. And I don't know if you guys have ever had the chance to be here or not, but um, you know, fortunately, if you're a podcaster, you're gonna have to come down and see it. But just to show you guys, it's a functional winery. So the tanks are all here, the barrels are all there, our bottling lines here, our corkers are here. Uh, everything is within house, we even have a lab. So as soon as that winery leaves Italy, we get test results on the sulfur levels, sugar levels, alcohol levels. Right. Yeah. And again, for two and a half years, we had to make sure that this process logistically worked because the winemakers were like, look, we'll do this for you, but I don't want to give any wine if it gets to America and it spoils. Like I've worked too hard for this wine. This yep. is like my family's yeah. heritage. So right. show me it works. And we did that by bringing it back for several years. We go show them the report back. Sulfur is great. Alcohol is great. Tastes great let it stabilize, you know, and we'll just let it calm down when it gets here because bottle shock is a very real thing. And then once it got here, we're like, oh my God, I think this actually works. This is like working. And so yeah. from there I was like, oh, now we got to find our own facility. Let's see how we can make this all happen. And, and ironically, that was another quick, funny story is I knew that this process was starting to work. I knew that we we're going to start making this wine. I was so over the ballpark neighborhood, man. Like there's, I've, I've been on homeless commissions. I've been protested down here. I hire homeless people. I was looking in Golden. We were looking in Morrison, something in South Denver. Yeah. And, uh, somebody tried to buy the whole block one, maybe three years ago, two years ago. And the pawn shop was next door. That's where I bought my wife's first Christmas present, by the way, Easy Pawn. It was right next door to Snooze. It was a Movado watch. It was stolen, but the guy promised me he left town. I was like, great, I can afford this. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, are you selling the pawn shop? And he was like, thinking about it. And I mean, you really couldn't write a script like that, right? Like the pawn right. shop next to Snooze, 15 years later, comes up for sale. So I call all my smart real estate guys. And I'm like, does this make sense to you? What does this look like? And, you know, they're all excited. Like, dude, you're going to own half a block of downtown. This thing is zone yeah. C8. Like, have a great time. And then when you're done, let us have it. You know, kind of mentality. So yeah. I ended up buying this section of it. So now I do. I get half this block. 
Um, I turned my whole passion into uh, this neighborhood. I'm back again, calling the homeless police every day, just kicked out a heroin addict this morning, unfortunately, but I can deal with this neighborhood. I kind of love this neighborhood. In yeah. fact, one of the reasons I love Denver was because it was just so plain vanilla white meat and potatoes. And yeah. it anything but meat and potatoes, vanilla white down here. In fact, it's easily the most diverse corner in the state of Colorado, where you've got yeah. the third oldest stadium in National League, Coors Field. You've got the you know economic arm of the city with the downtown. Yeah. You've got the largest density of homeless shelters. And if you look down Park Avenue West, this is really cool. It's actually Long's Peak which is like the back yeah. of the Colorado quarter. And so you kind of have this really cool random diversity that most places in Colorado doesn't exist. And I just sit them on the corner. I'm like, boom, back of the quarter. Boom, watch out for the homeless people. Bam, uh, a bunch of people coming in for Coors Field. All-star game happening. Like, yeah, it's pretty wild. Yeah. Do you have any dumpster divers that go through all your grapes once you throw them <laughs> It's so funny. We just had that shit come and you could almost just, they could smell it. So uh, unfortunately or not, I have the commander's cell phone number on my, you know, quick call. I know the graffiti yeah. doctor really, really well. He comes down and paints our building every two weeks. Uh, and some of them are amazing, man. I, I never hand out money, but I have people come in and they'll um, do small chores for us for their $5. It's pretty wild little neighborhood. Yeah, that's crazy. I guess going from snooze to winery. Well, what do you think was your most difficult part of going from, you know, something that's a little bit more corporate and you were trying to grow as fast as you possibly could to something that's a little bit more, I would imagine a little bit more manageable and not as much of a growth type of company. Totally. That's a, that's a great question. And uh, I don't know if this is healthy for me, but I sort of compare them to my two kids. And so snooze is like my growth child and his job is to be across the country and literally change the way people even think about breakfast. So thankfully the smarter team has come in to um, make that happen. Snooze just opened its 47th location last week in Laguna Niguel, which just blows my mind. I still get to flirt with being on the board of directors and, you know, called in a couple conversations on culinary cuisines or go to the new openings that are happening. But my important job is to sort of stay out of the way of that now. I almost sort of, I guess, parallel it to like maybe raising a child and then dropping them off at college and be like, all right, I did my job. Your job now is to go be a man or woman in the world and use way smarter people to kind of get you that next level. I think for me, one of the things that is advantageous is that I know what I know and I know what I don't. And I know that I don't want that job. Um, snooze will always be kind of part of my heart. And I still take photos of uh, breakfast porn and send it to the CEO all the time. And I'm like, we're not doing it right. We need to elevate this pancake. Why yeah. is this here? And he's probably like the like annoying founder, get off my back. I got yeah. 47 locations, shut up, <laughs> you know? But uh, I love, you know, creating something from scratch. I love maybe getting myself a little bloody to get through the door. I would never, ever, ever want to repeat 2020 again. That was professionally one of the hardest years I've ever had. But uh, now that we're, you know, kind of seeing the other side of this and uh, the, the newness of it all, like, I love being touchy-feely. It's that balance of not micromanaging, but also everything requires immediate attention. But uh, I love that to create a pancake, I don't have to go through four different meetings and three different sessions and spend two months creating it. If I don't like the pasta dish, I change it right there. And then the next day it's executed better. And so every day is like that momentum. I think you're a startup. 
you have to come into that mentality. At least I do being like, man, I gave everything to this. I literally spent my whole career to make Optimo happen. And I'm going to open these doors and I hope I'm 80% correct. And then I'm going to let the market come back to me and say, we don't really like your Barolo, but your Rosa is great. And we don't really like that dish. We like this dish and that ability to sort of react to kind of create that foundation and um, listen to what the market says is my jam, dude. I, I just love that reaction points. And when it gets to a point where it's just uh, processing, then I get probably a little bit more bored. The beauty of Otimo is that it's one location. We don't need to grow Optimos across the country. However, uh, we will grow into other markets. And it's pretty cool to think, gosh, already in a year and a half, we're in Texas, we're in California, we're in North Carolina, we're in Alabama, we're in Louisiana. I'll send a distributor calls and says, God, we heard about your story. Can you come here and here and here? And right now I'm literally like, you know what? We haven't earned that right yet. Give me another six months. Let me make sure I can produce that much volume. Let me make sure the bottling's right. But thank you for, you know, courting us. We're paying attention to you now. Right. And so the hard part is like licensing in different states, totally new, taxes in different states, totally new. We had the biggest cluster of a supply chain issue just happened the last three months. I don't know if you've read any of that, but that idiot that, you know, drank martinis and ran the boat into the Suez Canal yeah. actually does affect yeah. me. And uh, even though we don't go through the Suez Canal, six weeks, it delayed all shipping across the world. And then as the economy started opening up and all those carriers and boats that were all over the country started all going to China because targets and, and Walgreens needed to fill containers and they started paying five times up. And you're like, wait a minute, this is like my wine. I, I can't sell other wine. And the next thing you know, we had a five month delay on getting shipping back in. And it literally just again landed this morning. So you're like, oh, well that was weird. I never saw that coming. That wasn't in the business plan, but right. now I can dangerously say, I kind of know how to manage a, the shipping world. But, you know, next will be a euro dollar crisis sometime. And then after that will be a, a hailstorm vintage in 2022. So at that point, again, it's like control what you can control. Uh, have a good attitude about it the, along the way. And uh, again, man, in the end, what I also remind myself is it's just grape juice. You know, nobody's dying on my shift. I have my health. Our families are good. That was always our philosophy at Snooze, too. Like, it's just eggs, you guys. Like, we, had, we take having fun really, really seriously. But in the end, let's just take a breath and realize that, you know, we're, our purpose is to make people feel happy. But it's right. a weird balance too of like, I want to be a total gamer. I want to be the best at what we do. And thank God, you know, nobody's dying on our shifts or anything like that. Right. So John, tell us as a, I have to admit, I'm a, I'm a big wine out. You can hope maybe see in the back my my painting. I haven't hung it up yet, but uh, was I had to, I, do you, can you see my... Wine no, okay sweet i love it so, so i'm a big wine so i have to ask this question because i know if, if they're like me our listeners are like me they want to know so tell us a little bit more about your tasting room what you guys kind of offer as far as like when how when you're open do you guys offer tours what those look like what tasting offerings you guys have all of the above totally i love it and so i get you know we're we're italian focused winery uh piedmont is really the the area that we really focus on but again if you like wine please come in. And if you like Cabernets or Merlots or Chardonnays, uh, we always have something that is super fluent and comparable. We created the cutest little tasting room uh, for 70 people. So it's small, but imagine you're going into a tasting room in California or Oregon, very similar. So we have our wines behind the wall. Um, you can come in and do flights of whites, flights of reds. You can do uh, what we call our core wine. So you've got your whites, your red, your Rosso, 
and your rosé. If you want to go to the second tier and try a really good taste of Piedmont, you have the Dolcetto, the Barbera, the Nebbiolo. And then if you want to go higher ends, we've got Barolos and Barbarescos at different vintages. And to your point, it's amazing. We were doing a tasting of all the 16s that we have. So we have two different 2016s from areas that are literally just 10 kilometers apart and they're all different wines. Right. And so that's just the fascinating part of the education piece that we bring. Um, again, we have cellar tours that happen so you can rip wine out of the, out of the barrels um, and we can do tastings that way. We have an entire event space upstairs too. So we do a lot of private parties, weddings, um, bachelor parties, all that kind of stuff is all part of the tasting room. We have a very simple, clean, but very elevated um, snacks. So a beautiful charcuteries, uh, gorgeous burrata dishes. We rip some of our own pasta in house. So again, it's not a full menu, but uh, we make pasta every morning. So if you want a bowl of pasta and a little charcuterie, done deal. Um, we also have a really cool, really approachable wine club. And so for 25 bucks a month or 50 bucks a month, if you want to be primo superiore, it's two bottles every month. A lot of it's custom bottles that we start making. So um, it, you can only do it if you're in the wine club, but it also gives you 10% off your, um, your order every time, 15% off cases. If you're a superiore, we can customize um, an agenda and itinerary for you. If you ever want to go to Piedmont, we rent out our house. Uh, to our local wine club members. So I actually have four wine club members going to Piedmont this fall. And they're like, hey, we want to go September 14th to 17th. Is this real? And I was like, yes, let's go. So uh, my head winemaker is heading to Italy uh, for September and October. He'll be out there for entire harvest. I'm going next week for two weeks. I'll be there again in September. I'll be there for harvest again in October. But the wine club, man, is just super fun. The beauty is that you need to come in to pick up your wines, unless you're out of state, which we can ship it to you. But you come in, you grab your two bottles, you get a free glass of wine while you're here. Uh, remember, man, hospitality is our North Star. So the team that we have here is just insane. Um, and you just feel really, really comfortable here. And at the same time, I want to make sure that uh, it's just really approachable. You know, so wine doesn't have to be pretentious. Like if anything, it should be the opposite. So right. I see you, you know, with the cool little hat on right there, Matt, and you know, everybody's kind of casual, like this is Denver. So yeah. I would normally yeah. wear my flip-flops around, except it's not OSHA safe, but I'm definitely in sneakers and a button up that's super relaxed, Yeah. but we'll swirl our wines. We'll educate you on taste and smell and tannins and acids and dark fruits and different vintages. And we'll also just totally get out of your way. And, and if you want to order a Coors, we actually have a full license. You can still get a banquet beer here. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you guys, uh, so you just sign, do you sign for the wine club just online or how does that work? Yeah, you can go right online at optimawine.com and you can hit the website um, link and it'll show you right there. We offer direct to consumer for every reason you can't get down there. Uh, we can ship the wine to you as well, but gosh, we'd sure love to take care of you in person. I guess one yeah. of the silver linings of uh, COVID was that when we were opening, we had a parking lot next to us. And I wanted to like turn it into a production facility and make this beautiful piazza. And the city was like, no, 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 no. That's going to take another nine months of rezoning. And right. we got to get landmark involved. And all of a sudden it kind of became the wild west downtown and anything was go after a certain point. So we turned our parking lot into our piazza. And so we have outdoor dining now. We just put up a bunch of vegetable and herb gardens on the outside with um, seating. Like we're hosting a huge soccer party this Sunday because USA and Mexico are in the finals uh everybody wants to sit outside we do live musics on thursdays on the patio uh we have a comedy show that comes every wednesday so right now we're open wednesday through sunday 
uh, from three o'clock in the afternoon till about 10 o'clock at night. On Mondays and Tuesdays, we stay closed unless uh, wine club members want to come down and have a small little intimate party. And so we'll do different uh, kind of programming on those days. And those are fun. Like we have an unbelievable cocktail woman from um, Panzano's who's our tasting manager. And she'll do a cocktail class on Mondays. Uh, we might do a random Barolo dinner on, a, on another Monday night. Again, small, exclusive. Even last week, I had a fly fishing contest. I'm an old fly fisherman. And we did fly fishing, rolling cigars and Barolo in the piazza. Yeah. And uh, we all sat out there and cast into the glass. If you got it in, you, you want a bottle of Barolo. We had a woman rolling cigars, tasting Barolo and doing cellar tours. So, John, I'd like to request an, an invite for the next one of those. Yeah. I'm not a fly fisherman, but you had me at cigars and Barolo. So, yeah, no, uh, dude, it's so fun. So we have a guy right down there that uh, is right down the street, rolls these cigars. So it's pretty epic. Oh man, that's awesome. Well, well, John. So I think kind of just to, to cap it off here. Um, is there any last thing that you want our listeners to know? We kind of hit on how to go visit. We talked about the history and the wine and all that stuff, but you know, for the last minute or two here, is there anything that you kind of want to outline for our listeners before we let you go here? Uh, well, I appreciate that, man. Again, I think coming out of last year and having everybody so hunkered down, we in the hospitality business, we're ready to serve. So we are very safe. We are hundred percent vaccinated in our winery and restaurants. And, uh, I think, again, back to the original, humanity needs to be engaged. Socialization is an important part of our mental and well-being. And so we encourage everybody to support your local wineries and restaurants. Um, come down. Let us take care of you. You guys have earned it, especially given the last year. So um, we're excited for people to come downtown again and, and start being part of that thriving community. And we can't wait to kind of share what we've done here. This is an incredibly unique concept to the world. And humbly you know, speaking, Nobody I know in the country has created a DOC at a DOCG winery using Italian or even European grapes. So it's a proud Colorado brand. Um, and we're excited to, you know, kind of take care of our locals and our destination guests. And kind of just want to thank you both for inviting me on and let me hang out with you guys. Welcome to Denver, both of you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Well, yeah, John, thank right. you so much for, for hopping on with us. It's been awesome. Um, we're definitely going to want to kind of, we could probably talk to you for four hours. So we'll come in have a glass of wine and then finish this conversation then. But for now, thank you so much for joining us, John and everyone again, that is John Shake, John Schlegel, the uh, founder and host of Atomo Wines. Thanks again, John. Thank you. Thanks for the Atomo, the moment. All right. <laughs>